Welcome to Older Women Live. I'm Rosemary Wallin. Older Women Live features women's voices from across the globe and revisits over a decade of interviews I've done with a variety of people involved in social justice issues. This series provides background to contemporary issues like age, race, gender, and the impact of globalization on women's lives. In this episode, I talked to two women who met at the Grand Valley Institution for Women in Kitchener, Ontario. Rosemary Redshaw, a former chaplain, and a former inmate named Maureen. Maureen is a woman in her 40s who served nine years in prison at the Grand Valley Institute after killing her abusive partner. She doesn't want her last name used. She's now out of prison and returned to school to become a social worker. Here is Maureen's story. What did you do, Maureen, that got you a life sentence? Well, I shot and killed my common-law husband with a 12-gauge shotgun in a bar. At the time of the crime, I was fighting a multinational company, a discrimination case. I was living out in the bush, no running water, no hydro, no electricity. I was working as a lumberjack. The men were really cruel. But they didn't, like, touch me or anything like that. But, you know, my boss would spit in my face and tell me I was no good and take away this, the skill song, give me a toilet brush and tell me that's all women were good for and so on and so forth. And uh, I guess I just wasn't able to deal with that. came from construction down in Toronto, so I thought I could work right alongside with the men. I moved up there in 1989. I think it was Boxing Day. I start, well, wasn't even probably 11 months, and I was already hiding and crying in the shafts. And like I say, it was horrible, horrible what I went through. I was going to resign, put in my resignation, and the union president said, pull the resignation, Maureen, you need to fight this. Not understanding that the fight would go on for two years, and I would remain in the town. Small town. The whole town turned against me. Only woman. There was only five women in the mine, so I called the human rights. I had the human rights in there, and I had uh, the whole town turned against me, and uh, even the women that worked there. And the women that worked there didn't have a trade, and I was a tradesperson. Even they kind of, you know, hush-hush, their husbands all worked there, and, you know, one was a cleaner. So even they turned against me. And my sister's husband was a mine, a mine mechanic manager. When I won the case, my brother-in-law lost his job with the mine, and that in turn, they lost their house because of him losing his job with the mine, because it was part of the the job. My house burnt down, or my trailer burnt down out in the middle of the bush, and the man that I shot lost his job. I couldn't cope with living in the town, so I, you know, I was under the doctor's orders of medication, and oh my God, I'd never been on medication before, but nobody was doing psychotherapy with me or anything. I only know that today because of what I've been through, but so I'd just eat the pills and eat more pills and eat more pills because I, I lived there. I, I should have left town, but I, I didn't know how to. The drinking progressed. The drug use progressed. I went through... Uh, like I said, the trailer fire, I lost everything I owned, so I ended up on welfare. But instead of just collecting the welfare, I went to work. So I used to go to another smaller community in town and go to work. Because now I'm wearing clothes that I wear a rope around me to tie up my pants because I didn't have any money. I lost everything in the fire. I had nothing. 
And this was prior to me winning the battle, winning the actual lawsuit with the mine. And then he lost his job, like I said. So now he's living under the avails of my welfare and whatever that was I was collecting. But by this time, I'd, I was already far gone. And it was just a matter of do as much drugs as I can. Smoke a lot of drugs, the marijuana, the hash, um, drink, just to try to numb the pain, right? I eventually got enough clarity at one point and actually went back to Toronto. And I turned around and came right back again. It was absolutely crazy. And so now I'm out in the bush. I'm back in that community again. And now I'm logging. Now they've seen everything. Well, he told me, the fellow that's not with us today, but I'll take care of you and we'll be fine. And, and then uh, living out in the bush, lots of bug spray. Tons of bug spray. Not good for you. So I eventually just said I couldn't do it anymore. And from 1990, I would say... 11 months into working at that mine, I think I ended up into the nervous breakdown and never, ever came out of it. You come in Lowell House with somebody that you really, really cared about. I believed I did. I believed that he, he supported me. He's the one that helped me through the fights with the mine. And, and, you know, he was always there at my side, not realizing that he did the actual isolation to me, you know. We'll put you out in the bush and we'll take care of you out there, but don't go into town. He did that for the possessiveness and the control and all of that, but yet used, you know, you shouldn't go to town because, you know, you're bad and people don't like you in town. So, I mean, it was just all around. I thought everybody hated me. I, like Everybody lost everything around me, no matter where I went. Like I said, my sister lost her house. My brother-in-law lost her house. You know, they had two young children. And, and then, you know, like everybody lost their job and then my place burned down. And like, it just seemed that everywhere I went, something would happen. And this man was, you know, my knight in shining armor. He's the one that took care of me, right? He was the only one. Eventually, I didn't even speak to my parents anymore because he said, they're trying to turn you against me. So by that time, he was the only one left. Well, the thing that I was worried about with Maureen was that I would offend her in some way. I would ask her questions and that she would be too close to answer them. But in fact, the situation was not that at all. Maureen was open, she was friendly, she was confident. She uh, really wanted to speak. She wanted her story out in the open. Um, so it was a delightful interview. We were, it was actually an interview I did in a holiday cottage in Newfoundland. So the setting itself was quite mysterious, as was the content of the interview. Mysterious for me, anyway, as an interviewer. I think that people like Maureen, people who have committed acts that are so that horrify society, we actually never hear from these people. This is the voice of the voiceless. Nobody would ever bother to talk to Maureen because she would be so condemned that she would be considered not worth talking to. But in fact, she was a lovely person. I left him. I left him in the bush. I had no intentions on to, but some Frenchman come along and said, hey, I'll take care of you. And I was looking for any way out. So I thought, okay, well, this is not a bad idea. And no, he didn't want it, nothing to do with me. He slept with me one night and then said, go back to your husband. He's better for you. So when I went to go back to, to get my stuff, because by this time I was, oh, got to leave, he had taken the trailer and moved it. And all that was sitting there was my car. So 
Uh, so I didn't really know where my common law had went to. He could have been anywhere, right? But I just thought it's better for him to go away because now I've slept with this guy and now I'm a bad guy, right? So I didn't even know where he was. So maybe a, a couple of weeks or a month had passed and I was sitting in the bar and, and he walked in and I didn't even recognize him. He'd lost all this weight. He'd shaved off his mustache. Never seen the man without a mustache. And they said, there he is there. I said, that's not him. I said, that's him, Maureen. So... As much as I went downhill, he came right after me, which was, you know, a toxic, toxic relationship. And it was getting cold, so it was no good for him to be out in the bush anymore because there was no heat or anything. And by this time, like I said, I had a place. And he said, can I come and stay at your place? And I said, I don't think it's a good idea. And he said, uh, no, I think it can help you. He told me I was falling apart and he didn't want to see this and, you know, I was going to end up killing myself. And so he sweet-talked me back into it and... But, and I was already with the guilt and shame that you, now I've slept with this guy and now, look, you, you want me back and all that psychological damage that, you know, I, I owed him. I owed him because he took care of me for all that time, through all that, and then I go and do that and now he's willing to take me back. Yeah. <laughs> Kudos to me, right? So anyways, but he stole my money and everything. He came back into my life. We spent all that money, I mean, when I got the settlement, right? Yeah, living in the bush. I worked for him. He never paid me a red cent. And then when at that point, when he came back into my life, I said, you need to give me some money. And he said, no, I don't give you nothing. So he wanted me to give him money. But by this time, I was almost broke. I think I had like maybe a couple of $3,000 worth of Canada savings bonds left. So I let him stay with me. I let him stay with me. But it didn't work out well. Maureen's common-law husband had a skidding business in the bush. He claimed that he was going bankrupt, persuaded her to do unpaid work for him, but she later discovered that he was in fact not going bankrupt at all and was paying another skidder to work for him. Upset, Maureen confronted him and a big argument ensued. Angrily, Maureen walked out, headed for her sister's house, but went to the bar instead. I went to the bar and I got back drinking and drinking and drinking. I really actually just wanted to die, I think. Somehow I managed to have a gun. Don't remember. I don't remember going to get the gun. I walked into the bar, that the next bar beside the bowling alley, that I shouldn't have been in because I was barred from. I took a couple steps in the door. I, right, he was coming out. I raised the gun and shot him. I sat down in order to drink. I woke up, came to in the detention center. I had no idea why I was there. And the women that were there, there was a few women that were sitting in the, the cells, were watching TV and they said, it wouldn't have been the first time that I'd been in the cells, but I'd been in the drunk tanks, so I wasn't too sure what I was. I seen the bars and said, well, bars, drunk tank, I don't know. And I, I said to the women there, do you know why I'm here? And they said, you're there on the news. And that's where I found out that I shot and killed my common law husband. So the journey begins. Well, they cold turkeyed me off the medications that I was on. And even the psychiatrist that came to visit me had to not have any kind of um, interaction with me because of the, his connection with the mine. Small town, once again, right? So he just came once and cut me cold turkey off the Prozac and I never came back. And the poor women inside <laughs> they were so scared of me. Well, I was, I was a raving lunatic absolutely raving lunatic so i was coming off with alcohol i was withdrawing from alcohol i was withdrawing from prozac and not realizing that i had no idea about alcoholism no idea 
And presumably had no idea about antidepressant medication either. None. No, and it, Prozac was just on the market, just in the toxicity level of me, and plus the bug dope from working in the bush, like constantly, like all that DEET, and I was just a walking tox, toxic ball. And like I said, I wasn't speaking to any of my family, because, you know, they're not on my side. He was. And now, well, now I've taken a life, and now I've embarrassed them. I don't come from a place of this. We're not a criminal-oriented family, and I'm not saying anything wrong about criminally-oriented families or whatever. My principal crown witness is my sister. The police got her, and she's going to testify against me. My poor family. She's the principal crown witness. The witness for the crime that's going to get me a life sentence. She got a second-degree murder. Well, I was charged with first-degree the pre-trial was actually in a gymnasium in the small town. They took me back to the small town, and the judge fell asleep. And they, and they didn't drop it to second-degree murder, which was really unusual. I had no idea what you're supposed to do. And, you know, the lawyer would just go, don't worry about it, don't worry about it. And the judge is sleeping, and the people testifying are drunk. Small town. And you have no control, none. So eventually we'll go to the bigger court. That's, that's the pre-trial. And then you go to a court court. The judge was the same judge that gave me the arbitration. Same judge. A year later, I'm in front of him. I got 70000 the year before. And the six years later, I get a life sentence. So they drop it to jury. Jury doesn't have to. I'm going to plea bargain it out. The lawyer said, you got to plea this one out. So they plead me out at 11, life 11. I didn't understand what a plea bargain was. I didn't understand what a life sentence I didn't understand. I trust them, right? And plus, it was still nuts. And not only that, I was a victim. So here's a male lawyer, a male judge, a male crown, male sitting on the jury, and I've got a problem with men. You guys are right, and I'm wrong. So just do what you need to do with me. And I'm a bad person, and I need to go away for the rest of my natural life. So really actually pleading criminally and saying, no, I wanted to pay the price. Really pay the price. If I have to go for the rest of my life, that's what I need to do, because I wanted to know why I did it. But those answers aren't there. And they, they're still not there. I can only put bits and pieces and in the recovery aspect of what, what I can start to understand that, oh, where the situation I was in, being with him, living alone in the bush, because I always thought I was a strong woman. And today I understand that a strong woman asks for help. But I couldn't ask for help back then. I bared it all. I served nine years. And that was the last drink and the last drug I've had for almost 18 years. I did the first six years. A lot of therapy, a lot of trying to find out the answers. I was very fortunate to find a really, really good therapist that was actually a, a program facilitator. But I utilized her as a as a social worker. But she just took me under her wing in the institution, which I was very fortunate. I didn't understand why I couldn't reach the, the mental place that I was prior to all of that. Something wasn't right upstairs still. So I ended up starting to go to Alcoholics Anonymous and started on a spiritual journey. I dealt with the post-traumatic stress disorder. Once somebody labeled it for me, I could start to identify with it because I, I, I did a lot of like a peer support inside. I did a lot of social work inside with the other women. So I learned a lot of stuff from other women with the sexual abuse and I tried to compare it to. And when I got an opportunity to speak with this woman years and years, like I think she, she did me for two years of therapy with me. And she it tried to break it down to try for that I could understand it wasn't a sexual abuse, but it's abuse. And that's what it's like. 
So, uh, so I could kind of understand that aspect of it. Because it's much easier to work on your problem than it is for me to work on mine, right? I don't want to talk to you about my stuff. But I'll talk to you about your stuff. I mean, I could heal everybody in the penitentiary, so I thought. But nobody was going to be able to heal me. I wasn't going to be able to get through this. Once she put a label on it and said post-traumatic, I could start to do the actual work and say, okay, so what do I have to do? If I could have turned my mind inside out and so, or somebody say, okay, I'm going to wipe if it was like a whiteboard, I would just, please, wipe this out. Because it was reoccurring all the time. Men are right. Did I do the right thing? Like, this is how I lived my life for six years. Constantly. It would just go over and over and over in your head, you know? And then trying to live in a penitentiary and do all the right things. They say jump, you say how high. And most of the people inside don't do that. I was trying to become a person that I didn't even know who that person was. I thought... If I worked in the bush and I worked construction and I wore construction boots, then what I need to do is I need to curl my hair, put makeup on, high heel shoes, and be a woman and act like a lady. But every time I tried to do it, it just didn't fit. I've been out of the penitentiary since 2002. I did two and a half years in a halfway house. When I first got out, I started right back into construction yet again, because by that time I had worked on a lot of my issues, and I really thought that being a carpenter was my problem, and that's why I ended up in prison. But during the journey in prison, I realized that it had nothing to do with being a carpenter and so on and so forth, and I, I could do that as a woman, and it was going to be safe. And, and But not realizing that there's still some issues with that. And I came out, and I, I actually fell into, into the abuse yet again. I didn't know no difference still at this point. Besides having a therapist and coming, I didn't know what it was like to have a healthy relationship yet. So why not throw yourself into construction where you could yell and scream and it was the same kind of environment. I wasn't, I wasn't going to be able to work in an office. I talk like a truck driver. I walk like a truck driver. I didn't come out like a princess. <laughs> and I came out, of course, with that great thing that we talk about, that big label on my forehead, right? You know I've just been out of the penitentiary, right? So I jumped into construction a week and a half after I got out. And, but I had to do it because I had to prove it to my family that all of this stuff happened and I was going to be a better person. So I was still carrying the post-traumatic and still carrying the guilt and shame right up until that point. And right up until probably about three years ago, I've been carrying what was left of that bag. I started in the construction and then didn't do very well living in the city once I got out. It was too much. Moved up north, stayed in the construction, framing houses, and then um, getting older, not wanting to do it anymore. And I started to understand that I didn't have to do it anymore. I wanted to be a little more feminine. I was getting a little more healthier with going to Alcoholics Anonymous. And it was okay to change. The fear wasn't as strong anymore. So I could actually maybe reach out and try something. Because, you know, you're still on parole and your parents are still looking forward to you. Are you going to be okay? Are you going to be okay? But I want to I want to spread my wings and try this. And I want to show them that, okay, we'll just go back to normal living. Well, it never goes back to normal living. It doesn't. Some days it's okay. Some days my, my family forget that it's ever there. And I'm here today, right? I mean, went back to school and, and tried boat mechanics. And once again, I could do that, you know, and, and, and you know, because it's tourism and, you know, I could still be a little feminine and kind of bop around. And once again, I ran into an abusive employer. I mean, I just like was attracted to it. So I think I learned to be assertive as opposed to aggressive. And I was starting to do the work that needed to be done out in society. And I didn't have to take that craziness. I didn't have to take that abuse anymore. 
just because I was a prisoner and I'd done that crime and all of that, I didn't have to be abused by anybody else. I was going to stay at that job because I was going to I was going to bear and grin this and I was going to oversee this and but I was still putting my paws out there. Was it what was I going to do, right? And I got a phone call from uh, the head of the parole division in Toronto. And she said, "Maureen, there's a job available." They're looking to hire you, Maury. And I said, you know, you and I have been down this road before, and I really don't want nothing to do with corrections, because actually when I first came out, I wanted, wanted to go back, not to go back to live. I wanted to go back to help the women still. I was involved, and I tried, and it didn't pan out, and I got a little scared again, and I went in undercover again, and just, you know, I just got to get away from the corrections. So... She said, all the more reason, Maureen, you've got the experience. You, you already know both sides now that you got to play. So I said, well, I'll think about it. And I talked to my family about it. I talked to my supports about it. And I talked to, you know, a few spiritual advisors and my group AA. And that's what I do today. I actually work with the women serving life sentences. I took the job. Uh, I walk back into the penitentiary every single day. And I work with these women to help them get over the guilt and shame and to do the journey. Because that's what sticks, that's where we get stuck. We get stuck with that post-traumatic. We don't have any identification as to why. And we carry huge amounts of guilt and shame. So why should we ever leave? And if we do leave, then we're going to get out and we're going to drink and drug. Which will bring us back because that's a stipulation that we're not allowed to do. In the beginning, I had really high expectations. I could go in there and solve the problems of the world, right? And boy, oh boy, what a slap in the face. So it's been another challenge, but as much as I give, I get back tenfold. Rosemary Renshaw is the recently retired chaplain of the Grand Valley Institution, Kitchener, Canada's largest federal prison for women. In the summer, I sat down with her to talk about her work with the women. Who are the women in the federal women's prison at Grand Valley Institution? Well, there's a whole gamut of women, so I wouldn't want to box any women. Everything from a PhD town to people who have been caught at the airport and can't speak English. But the, they say that the general... Uh, statistics of women in prison, you have two-thirds are, are moms with at least one child under the age of 16 when they were charged with their offense. Two-thirds have a substance abuse problem, and then mostly those substance abuse problems are related to the fact that 80 to 90 percent of them have been physically or sexually abused. We have women coming in where the average grade education level is 8 to 10 with no skills. They are women who have grown up in poverty and lived in poverty at the time of the offense. Mental health issues have now gone to 25% of the population. So we're talking serious mental health issues, not I'm depressed because I'm in prison. We have a high number of women who have um, attempted either suicide or self-mutilation before they have arrived. 
and uh, people coming in with low self-esteem, very uh, difficulties with trust. Aboriginal numbers are running around 25 to 26 percent are Aboriginal background. And a great number who have gone through trauma and abuse. That's basically it. And uh, to me, of course, all the women are there because of grief and loss issues, which are very varied in their life. Rosemary was considered a friend of the prisoners. And she said that when she came to work, there were people knocking at her door all the time and that she couldn't even have time to go to the washroom on many a day. Her days were very long, quite exhausting, very full, but she just oozed such love and respect for the women that she'd been looking after. Her devotion on a daily basis, that was very, very tiring for her. And she says somewhere that she didn't want to leave, but she knew her time had come and that she had to do something else. And now she's still doing spiritual work, but she's not doing it in the prison setting anymore. Just before I left, there was another change in the policy of the institution, which meant that the women were not allowed free movement within the institution without a piece of paper in their hand to say where they were going and why. So I I combated that over and over again, saying that Spirituality was an essential service. Women did not have to tell people why they were coming to see me or request to come and see me. They could see me at a drop of a hat and just come across and see me, but that was actually stopped, which meant all of a sudden that flow of women that was happening uh, between count times uh, dropped to nil. The officers were literally chasing them out of the building. Uh, So they could sit still for a little bit too, but there was no movement in the in the building, and uh, it was it was a very very frustrating time at the very end to be able to do ministry. What was the best part of your job? What was it that you liked the best, and what were the challenges? The best part was when you're talking to somebody and the light goes on, and uh, you realize you know maybe for the first time in their life they've heard something that rang true, and made them think differently. So you're not providing them with answers, but you're challenging their thought process. So for me, the highlights were those aha moments where somebody said, now I understand why I did what I did or how I got here, putting the pieces together of their past to understand uh, how their grief and loss issues brought them into prison, because I think that's the most important thing to, th- to look at uh, when you're in prison. It's funny, we offer no programs in terms of the institution itself, but only through chaplaincy did we talk about grief and loss. But I believe that's why everybody is in prison is because of grief and loss issues. I think the frustrating thing is is always management. It's always the change in policy. I was trying to think of how many wardens we had in the 17 years. We had at least six. So each of them have their own style of doing it. Uh, We went from even female to male wardens, which was a bit of a shock or two. Um, and, uh, you know, and then a warden who didn't have children who was male. So that, you know, you feel those are dynamics of two thirds of your population have children that you would have someone who understands the dynamic of your population a little better. So I saw a lot of shifts and then a lot of shifts in policy, depending uh, on the government swing. So with the conservative government and the move from the liberal, we saw a dramatic shift in that tough on crime and what that meant in terms of cost factors, what it meant in terms of lack of services. So those things rocked the institution and caused a lot of difficulties and were the major challenges. Why all the changes of wardens and can you talk a little bit more about some of these shifts that you saw? 
for various reasons, different wardens came and went, but it, the thing about Grand Valley is it sits in Ontario, which is the most uh, highly optic institution in Canada. Uh, so the news was on us and corrections was on us at all times for every move that we made. And it literally drained, I think, some of our uh, wardens. Uh, you know, wardens left and were physically in danger. I mean, physically had difficulties because of the stresses of the institution and then having, uh, you know, staff that worked, you know, 12, 14 hour days, day after day. And, and it just uh, it, it, it just couldn't be done. So I think that there was a lot of shifts due to that. And, you know, part of it is also the movement upward and the movement outward. And so people move on for different reasons. So at the beginning, it was interesting to watch that the prison subculture did not uh, come forth. Uh, from the inmates, it came forth from the staff. So the inmates who were coming in, the offenders that were coming in from the provincial systems after they were sentenced knew nothing because most women in the federal system ha do not have not done provincial time. And so they'd come in with these open eyes and, you know, welcoming, you know, officers. And, and the officers uh, started building these walls, especially since we started getting um, more and more officers from other institutions who came in with uh, an idea, with a, a set of training, with a set of eyes that just couldn't function. So our first warden had picnics all the time. When there was an issue and there was a problem, she literally said, let's have a barbecue. Let's get everybody together in the same spot because then you can talk to the officers and you can see them and you can talk to management. She also had people in management who would walk the compound. So women knew if they asked the question, they could get an answer to their question. If they didn't, that person would be back the next day and they could say what's going on. So I think just being able to answer the question. So what began happening was uh, walls, literally physical walls began being built in the institution. One-way glass started going up. Uh, there was this um, inertia about safety when there certainly shouldn't have uh, given the sense that we needed to build those one-way mirrors and let's not answer your question and you can fill out a request form and maybe it'll get answered maybe it wouldn't in order to maintain the security we brought in institutional uh, officers from other institutions who literally when they came in I was aghast I was seeing the gray and white again just sort of took me aback and the big huge males that came and arrived and it was it literally threw the institution into another wave and uh, in a sense we never really returned from that so in a morning meeting we would always call a woman by her first and last name. That was our policy. And then after uh, that happened, it was inmate so-and-so and by last name. And it was a real shift that the women lost uh, the respect that we were supposed to offer them. We opened the institution with a document called Creating Choices. And in that document, the women sat down with the other agencies and formulated what the vision would be for an institution. And the first warden followed that, that dream uh, even to the point where she didn't follow some of the, quote, CSC policies because she believes so much in the dream. But she had the respect of each and every one of those women and the respect of, uh, of myself, that's for sure. And so as we moved away from creating choices because of uh, treasury concerns, we started to lose what was the original intent of the institution, the vision of these institutions, what took 10 years to put together as a document. Once it was together, I remember us celebrating the anniversary and cry, literally crying because we had lost the vision of what that institution was to be originally. So you went from a, an optimistic, humane optic to uh, a brutal, repressive, pessimistic place. 
Yes, it did. And, and what was very shocking for me is that I had done 10 years in, in provincial already. So I had worked with young offenders. I had worked with adult males. And uh, I got to the point in the system where I was literally numb to the abuses that I saw. And my phrase was, I had lost my soul, and so I was going to leave chaplaincy. And when I was offered the job at Grand Valley, I thought, this is the only thing I have left. And if I saw one abuse of staff on women, I would leave immediately. And it was, a, it was refreshing to my soul to see something that was so positive and uh, so women-driven and so women-centered and women-distinct, which we talk about in corrections, and it's in there in the policies, but it certainly doesn't live it out. And to, to a point where uh, we had clouded the issue, where money had taken precedent over the uh, individual uh, initiatives and putting women at the center of what we were doing to provide in the long run, which is safety and security in society. That's what we're looking for. Everybody's looking for safety. And we had lost the vision of what safety looked like when you were working with women. What needs to happen for successful reintegration of the women in society, given the experiences that they have in the prison? We've moved away from money in, in community for a reintegration. There needs to be a much better understanding of uh, the issues that a woman faces in reintegration, because it's not just a woman, but it's a woman and her children. And we are also releasing women to areas that they may not necessarily in the halfway house be in the area of where they want to live. They're, you know, being uprooted and then uprooted again. We haven't really worked through the initiatives in terms of what it is to reintegrate and what you need to fill out and who you need to see and where you need to go to get help. And uh, I'm astounded by women who do this on their own. I recently did that for a woman released from Grand Valley on June 17th, and I, I felt embarrassed that I'd never done it before, but I was shocked by the process, absolutely shocked. If she had not had people around her, the pitfalls she would have hit into, and you wonder why the recidivism rate for women, not for reoffending, because the reoffending rate is very low, it's about 5-6%, the recidivism rate for being in a halfway house and coming back is about 25%, and why it is. It made total sense having walked through that process with her. I mean, women are just looking for a place to work. They're looking for a home. They're looking for a place where they can get their children back again. But the Conservative government has changed the policy around uh, getting a pardon and made it much more difficult for anybody to get a pardon. Uh, you know, they've made it difficult to be able to uh, leave the institution in a gradual release. And yet corrections themselves has discovered that a gradual release is the most successful release possible. Yet these women are going before the Parole Board of Canada and the Parole Board of Canada as it's become more and more conservative in its members. They're loading them up with ex-police chiefs and people who've been, um, you know, in that line of work. And yet it's supposed to be a jury of their peers. Uh, parole Board is supposed to be anybody under the sun who is a normal human being living in this world can be part of that peer group. Because they've stacked it, more and more women are being denied uh, parole. So they're staying till their stat release, literally walking out the door 
do nothing. They're not even at a halfway house where they even have that support. They're on stat release. See you later. Good luck. Just tell the parole officer where you're going to be each week and you're outside the door and you find yourself a job and you find yourself a place to live and you just reestablish yourself from nothing. You might be leaving with no ID because the police have taken it. Many, many times the police take ID and then you don't see your ID again. So you've got to put your whole ID together again. How do you get OHIP? While you're in a federal prison, you are not covered by OHIP because the provincial government doesn't believe you exist. So now you've walked out and you have no OHIP card and you have medication for X amount of days. And if you don't get that medication, you're in trouble. So what do you do? It's costing the uh, taxpayer, not the government, over $600 a day per woman. And there are many more creative ways to use that $600 per day and have many more successes. I mean, it's costing $600 per day for a woman to stay in jail. Yes, that shocks you, doesn't it? It started off when I was first uh, uh, hired. It was $110,000 a year per woman, and that uh, has now uh, over doubled. So we're probably running about 244000 I think we are, for uh, one woman per year. So when you think of that cost factor, so for example, we came with a suggestion of having a halfway house in Kitchener because there's you know 400-plus volunteers coming into Grand Valley, never mind the amazing churches in this area. And they turned us down because they wanted to make sure the beds in the other areas are are filled. They don't say we need them. Yet when uh, there's a work release going on in a male prison, uh, the male goes to a halfway house in the area and goes from that halfway house to the work release, so it, it drops in the cost. A halfway house per day costs $134 a day as opposed to over 600 So instead of opening a halfway house, we move them to other areas, and those that are on work release have to leave from the prison every day and come back to the prison at over $600 a day when they could be going to a halfway house in Kitchener at 134 I mean, when you see that kind of expenditure, it's absolutely astounding. If you could wave a magic wand, Rosemary, what would be the key elements that you'd like to see in a women's prison system? Well, I think in terms of getting women out, uh, because most of them are in for fraud or drug, tra- uh, or drug trafficking, um, I would say let's get, bring back accelerated parole release. Uh, we increased in population about 32 overnight. You know, this is going to sound odd and off the wall maybe, but you know what I'd love to see as a naturopath? I really would. I'd like to see a naturopath in the institution. I would like to have the women have the freedom, uh, be able to choose the kind of medical care they get. We give them a lot of drugs to survive, and they are very numb at times. And that is that does not help. Keeping them in an institution where you've numbed them does not help them in reintegration. It doesn't help for the safety of community. So I think finding uh, alternative ways of dealing with mental health issues and alternative ways of dealing with the care of women uh, medically would make a a great difference in terms of the women's success in the long run. And if I could wave a magic wand, I would probably say let's get more support staff and less correctional staff. It sounds as though you think there's really a lot of room in these institutions for human warmth and compassion and solidarity and mutual care. Yes, and I think there's a lot of people in the institution that believe in it and offer it. Uh, It's just difficult sometimes in the aura of the institution. It's easy to get sucked into the negativity. One of the teachers once said uh, of Grand Valley, we walk the fine line between heaven and hell every day. And he was so right, we do. We walk that fine line between heaven and hell. And you have to determine if you're going to be on the heaven side or the hell side. And sometimes the hell side wins over. There have been some things that have happened in that institution that have never hit 
the press. And I think one of the things about uh, the document choices, which was very profound, was that the hiring of support staff, such as nurses and teachers, and that would come from the community. Why? Because when the community is in there, people behave. And it has become more and more closed as we brought the contracts inward. Oh, yes, we're saving dollars, but we're also closing the eye of the public to what is happening. You were just listening to episode 10 of Older Women Live, the podcast. On this episode, you heard my conversation with Maureen, a former prisoner, and Rosemary Redshaw, a chaplain, both from the Grand Valley Institution, Kitchener, Waterloo, Ontario. Older Women Live is produced by Michelle Macklem and me, Rosemary Wally. Older Women Live is a production of Aging, Communications and Technologies and CKUT 90.3 FM, both in Montreal, Canada. You can listen to more episodes by subscribing on iTunes or visiting our website at actproject.ca slash OWL.